I'm Brian McPherson, and this is the Athena Health Podcast. We're producing this podcast to help clinicians and staff better utilize Athena One so that Athena One can best support your patient care. One of the ways we're doing that is in adding customization opportunities for clinicians. We've heard your feedback over the years that Athena One can be too much of a one-size-fits-all platform, and so we've focused a lot of energy in recent releases in creating opportunities for clinicians and departments to set up Athena One in a way that works best for them. I'm joined now by Dr. Neela Jessel, Chief Medical Officer here at Athena Health. Dr. Jessel, thanks for joining me. Hey, Brian. It's nice to be on the podcast again. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So we've talked before when you've been on the podcast about some key accelerators that we hope all clinicians using Athena One are using. Um, One of those major ones is order sets. Can you go through how order sets save time for clinicians? Yes, sure. So order sets are probably one of my favorite things right after encounter plans, which I know we'll talk about as well. Order sets can significantly speed up documentation and facilitate both ordering and diagnosis selection. So I'll give you an example. If I have an order or a diagnosis that I don't use all that frequently, where, for example, I don't remember it off the top of my head. And and an example from my life as a pediatrician would be a hip ultrasound for breach presentation. It's not something that I order that frequently. And the diagnosis that is required to place this order is somewhat convoluted and difficult to find. So what I can do is I can create an order set and include both the diagnosis and the right order and then name this order set something that's easy for me to remember. For example, screening hip ultrasound. I can give it any name I want. And then it becomes very easy for me to search for this order and this diagnosis and it will pop right up and it will drop right in. The other cool thing about order sets is that I can default elements that it might take me a while to complete. For example, a sick for a medication prescription, patient instructions, vaccine quantity, all those things can be defaulted in order sets. A third thing that I really like about order sets is that I can create order sets for future orders. So If I'm an endocrinologist, for example, and I have to place frequent follow-up orders for patients um, that tend to be the same set of orders, for example, order sets for someone with uh, diabetes who needs follow-up labs regularly every three or six months, I can actually create an order set where I include all those lab orders and set the performance date to three months in the future as the default. And then I can label this order set, for example, three months follow-up labs. And when I pull this order set in, all my orders will automatically default to three months in the future. I can default all the correct instructions and I'm done with one click. So order sets serve a variety of purposes. And, And the name order sets is a little bit of a misnomer because you don't necessarily need to include multiple orders. As I outlined in my example with the hip ultrasound, order sets can include just a single order, or they might you might include just a single diagnosis in a diagnosis order set that is difficult for you to remember and that you want to drop in in exactly that combination. So there's lots of opportunities, and I personally am a huge fan of order sets, and if you leverage them correctly, it really can speed up your documentation and also um, improve your ordering and make sure that your orders are correct right out of the gate. Before we go more into order sets, you mentioned encounter plans as an associated complementary accelerator that you love to use as well. Can you tell us more about encounter plans and what makes them your favorite? 
Absolutely. Yeah. As I mentioned, encounter plans are probably my most favorite feature. They're basically a way to pre-build your note uh, and they can both speed up documentation and also really ensure that you don't forget to do crucial items during the visit. So to give another example, again, out of my life as a pediatrician, but these can be leveraged for many, many different specialties. Um, I tend to pre-build encounter plans for my well visits. So um, as a pediatrician, I have well child visits at certain ages, two months, four months, six months. There are certain things I need to do at these ages. I need to ensure I ask certain questions of the parents. I need to ensure I place certain orders age-appropriate vaccines, age-appropriate screening questionnaires, age-appropriate patient education handouts. I can actually include all these items into an encounter plan, including instructions that I may wish to give to the parents regarding anticipatory guidance, for example, things that I discussed during the visit, um, certain templates that I typically leverage during those visits, such as a um, Edinburgh postnatal depression screen, for example, during a six-month well child visit for the mother or um, a physical examination template that I typically would leverage at a six-month visit. So I can include all these elements into my encounter plan, and then I select a reason for the visit that will trigger this encounter plan. So in this particular example, I would select the reason for visit six months well child visit. And as soon as my medical assistant or I click this reason for visit, all those elements will automatically populate in my visit note and both remind me to complete them as well as dramatically speed up my documentation. So with encounter plans, it is often possible to complete the vast majority of the documentation before you even walk into the room. And then you just change the few elements that are different for this particular patient. So in my mind, encounter plans don't just facilitate documentation and really enhance and speed up the process, but they really can also drive adherence to best clinical practice um, by ensuring that providers don't forget to ask certain things or document certain things. So you mentioned in there that there are times when you're doing a lot of your documentation ahead of time or you have your order sets or encounter plans queued up ahead of time, but you want to be able to make changes in the exam room at the point of care. About a year ago in Athena One, we introduced a feature to enable clinicians to modify order sets at the point of care to more easily remove orders from an order set that might not be applicable for that particular patient. In that year since we've seen that released, how have we seen that feature used? Yeah, that, that is a great question. Um, and it's one that I actually get quite frequently. So order sets, as I mentioned, can include multiple orders. M one example would be an order set for chest pain, right? If I include, let's say, 10 orders in this order set for chest pain, five of those may apply to every patient that walks in the door with this diagnosis, and the remaining five may apply to only some patients. So if you drop in an order set um, and populate your encounter with all those 10 orders, it can be sometimes a little bit cumbersome to delete those orders once they're added to the assessment and plan. So we're now giving our users the ability to actually preview the order set before you add it to your visit note, and you can unselect any orders in the preview screen that you don't need for this particular patient. So this is very, very helpful um, because, again, it's much easier in this preview screen to quickly unselect the orders you don't want to add than to do it once they have been added to your assessment and plan your encounter note. Now, the feedback that we've heard is that this is very useful, but that users would prefer it even more if we could change the design to allow them to always select the first five orders by default 
and then select additional orders in the preview screen as opposed to unselecting orders that they don't want. So this is a minor nuance, but um, this would function more similar to, to care pathways used in the acute care settings where certain orders are always defaulted and then additional orders are selected if applicable to this particular patient. So we are looking at opportunities to potentially enable this functionality in the future. So one specific order set with its own requirements is vaccine order sets. What has changed in the past year or so with vaccine ordering? Ah, that is a great question. And it's something that's near and dear to my heart as a pediatrician, where I do a lot of vaccine ordering. So the complicated answer is that due to regulatory requirements, we added quite a significant amount of additional data fields to vaccine orders. And this is part of, for those of you who care to know, the ONC 2015 edition F1 certification requirement, which requires transmission of additional vaccine data to registries. For example, reasons for vaccines not given data, partially administered vaccines, which is a new field. And, and what that basically means is that as you were administering the vaccine, something happened. Um, the patient moved, there was an error, and, and you were only able to administer half of the dose, for example. This, this is something that registry want to know about because it does affect potentially the patient's immunity and vaccine protective status. So we are now supposed to not only document those things uh, during clinical administration of vaccines, but we also are required to transmit that data to immunization registries. Um, other new fields that you may see are requirements for VFC eligibility and funding status data, for example. So most of our users will have noticed addition of these data fields to vaccine orders in the past year. And, and one new requirement is also that the vaccine information statement sheet must be selected at the time of ordering. There, there is a different versions of those. And the new requirement is that the most current version that was given to the patient, if there's multiple versions, for example, for combination vaccines, must be indicated in the order and also transmitted to the registry. So this unfortunately has added quite a number of, of clicks and we wished that was different. Certainly not something that we desire to do, but again, this is a regulatory requirement um, and we did our best to minimize the impact on our users as much as possible by, for example, allowing default of certain fields in vaccine order sets. And, and uh, the most important one in my mind here is the quantity field. So quantity field is now required for administered vaccine, again, due to the regulatory registry transmission requirement. But it is possible to default the quantity field in an order set, and that can significantly decrease the amount of administrative work required during vaccine administration if users build those order sets and default those fields. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit in terms of the way that the order set can sort of alleviate the extra work required by that new required quantity field? Sure. Yeah. In in the order sets, you can default your quantity and, and there's multiple options. Um, in the vaccine order name, oftentimes the default quantity is indicated. So for example, flu vaccine, it might say, you know, 60,000 micrograms per 0.5 ml. So in the quantity field, you have the options to either indicate the quantity in micrograms, if you so choose, or in milligrams or in milliliters. So, so I think most of us in, 
the clinical would um, default typically to milliliters. So we'll say the dose was 0.5 milliliter or um, in the case of vaccines where the dose is age-dependent, or so, um, Moderna COVID vaccine is one example, the dose for a pediatric patient up to a certain age is 0.25 milliliter. The full dose for um, anybody above a certain age is 0.5 milliliter. It's the absolute same vaccine. It's just a different dose for different age groups. So in this case, it is extremely important to indicate how much of this vaccine did you actually give? There is not two different formulations. It's a single formulation for all age groups. And then a different dose is given, which determines the quantity. So in, in this case, it would be helpful to build an order set. And we have done this globally for Athena, where we say, okay, for this age, let's say up to six years, the default quantity is 0.25 milliliter. The same order is leveraged in an order set for ages um, six plus, and the default quantity is 0.5 milliliter. It's just one example. So staying on the topic of vaccines, as of the fall 2023 release back in November, clinicians can now see vaccine forecast data from their state or local immunization information systems. How have we seen this feature reduce work for clinicians? Yes, so this information is directly imported from uh, the vaccine registries that we interface with. And um, as everybody knows, there's many different states in the U.S. and many different vaccine registries. So this information varies by state and depends a little bit on the capabilities of this particular state's immunization registry. But where available, we import vaccine forecasting information directly from the vaccination registry. And this should help clinicians um, quickly assess what vaccines a patient has already had and what vaccines they are due for today. In addition to the immunization forecast, which now displays you know, in the immunization tab and can be expanded and reviewed, we have additional support for clinicians who need to administer vaccines to ensure that the correct vaccines are given. I already mentioned the order sets, which can be leveraged to ensure that of the many available vaccines, those that are actually available for the particular practice are given to the patient and not, you know, an order is placed for a vaccine that actually is a manufacturer different from what the practice has in stock or a quantity that is different from what was actually administered. But in addition to that, we also have clinical guidelines that can be leveraged for the purpose of vaccine forecasting. So clinical guidelines are available for pediatric preventative care and also adult preventative care and include vaccine-specific guidelines. Um, the parameters for those specific vaccine-specific guidelines can be set by the individual practice and can be set dependent to that practice's vaccination schedule. So um, if I'm a pediatric practice, for example, and I administer tetanus, DTAB, always at 15 months as, as the booster, I can set those parameters in the clinical guidelines, and then uh, the physician will be prompted to actually look at the quality tab and see how many vaccines has this patient already have, what are they due for today, what are they overdue for. Um, I love the clinical guidelines because they can really alert a provider to missing or incorrectly administered vaccines. I'll, I'll give you an example where, for example, polio, IPV requires four doses. And if I just glance at the vaccine um, immunization tab and I might see four doses, but I might miss that the fourth dose was actually administered at an age that was not considered appropriate. So the fourth dose should be administered at or after four years of age. 
And, and oftentimes in children who receive combination vaccines, they'll get four doses as part of the combination vaccine. And the fourth dose may actually have been administered at 15 months. I might miss this if I just count doses, but the clinical guideline will actually clearly show me at what age the vaccine was given and will alert me to the fact that, yes, this patient has had four doses, but the fourth dose was actually not counted because it was given at the incorrect age and this patient will need a fifth dose. So I think the combination of our new um, vaccine forecasting information that is imported directly from the registry and may include vaccinations that were given outside of your practice that you may not have been aware of. And the clinical guidelines really helps clinicians to stay on top of their patients' vaccinations and will help prevent vaccine administration errors. A lot of these examples you're giving, obviously, are specific to pediatrics. That's your area of expertise. A lot of clinicians may be involved in that, may be involved in other specialties as well. And what you're describing is sort of customizing Athena One to be able to best fit your specialty and your patients and what you really need, even in terms of vaccine schedules. One thing we're really working hard on is enabling clinicians to customize Athena One to work for them as best possible based on their specialty, best on their work style, all those things. So I wanted to talk about a few other beyond the order sets and some of the other things you've talked about, these other customization opportunities that exist and are coming as well. One big update we made last year was to enable users to configure and reorder fields in the clinical inbox grid view. What's the advantage to, to customizing that? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Like no two specialties work the same and, and one size usually does not fit all. And even within the practice, there's significant differences in jobs to be done and how users go about completing their daily work. So the work that I as a provider need to do, for example, differs significantly from the work that my nurse needs to do or my medical assistant or my biller or my receptionist. So what we're trying to do is to allow users to configure Athena according to their needs and the job they need to do over the course of their day. Uh, and you mentioned the clinical inbox. So what we're really trying to do is move the clinical inbox from the work list that it basically is today to more of a tool that allows uh, users to really organize and prioritize their work um, and, and ensure that they are working on what, what is most important to them. As I, as I said, that will vary considerably by role within a, a single practice. So the reason why we're doing this is because we're really trying to provide the most important additional data that users can then use to prioritize or organize their particular work. Um, and as I had mentioned, the direction we're going with the inbox is to move the inbox from a simple work list to get the work you need to do to a configurable work management tool that allows you to get your work, organize your work and complete your work without needing to navigate anywhere else in, in the application. Um, the first step that we have taken in that direction is, as you mentioned, the configurable inbox fields uh, or columns in this case. And, and I'm talking about the clinical inbox, which is the grid view, um, not the list view at, at this point in time. Um, they are leveraged differently and they have different functionalities. And most users will leverage a combination of both depending on, on what they need to get done, what job they need to get done. And what we really are trying to get to is to ultimately enable a single view um, where users can organize their inbox to allow them to get the jobs done that they need to get done. So with this first slice or iteration of um, configurable fields is it allows users to 
only enable fields in their view that they actually need to see. So if I don't need to see the status column, for example, I can now unselect it or hide it, um, and which gives me more real estate space in the inbox and allows me to really focus on the fields that I really need to see. The second thing that we've done is we have surfaced additional information in the inbox. So patient cases, for example, in the clinical inbox now show the last note. This is great because if I work the inbox with multiple people, for example, I can now see if someone has already touched that patient case and then what the status of it is, right? If the last note is, I called the patient today waiting for a callback, I don't need to open this. And, and look at it. I can just leave it and attack the next patient case to work down my list. Um, we're trying to take this one step further in the next release uh, that is coming in March. We will help with efficiency by writing additional accelerators to reduce click scrolling and navigations. So what we're doing is allowing users to uh, right click on, let's say, a patient case and see action fields right from the clinical inbox. So I might be able to now forward the case to someone else who I feel is better suited to address it. I might be able to close it. I might be able to respond to the patient. All these actions that have historically required me to actually open the case, go down to the action menu and take that action, users will now be able to do directly from the inbox. So that should also help significantly accelerate work and, and reduce workload by allowing users to um, take actions directly from the inbox and it should reduce clicks, scrolling and, and navigations. And we have lots more additional plans, including uh, hopefully bulk actions and then not too distant future. So we're really trying very hard to move the inbox from, like I said, a simple work list to a functional work management tool that users might be used to from other applications outside of Athena One. Yeah, I just want to I want to underscore that because that sounds like a really big step forward in terms of enabling clinicians to take actions directly from the clinical inbox rather than clicking into every single patient case. Um, I do want to emphasize that some of these things are subject to change as we're recording now before the spring 2024 release. We do test our functionality extensively, and sometimes that means that we find that we need to delay it to fix certain things to make sure it's fully performant. So our plan is to release it in the spring 2024 release. I just want to caution those things are subject to change, but it is a very, very exciting feature that is in the works and will come out probably in spring 2024, if not later on in 2024. Can you sort of elaborate more on how you would see yourself or maybe how we've heard beta users using that feature to sort of change the way that they use the clinical inbox, you know, in terms of that work management tool rather than a simple list? Yeah, so like I said, one, one of the most frequent complaints that I've heard over the years when it comes to the clinical inbox is that it's hard to use it as a work management tool, right? Because it, it is just a list today. There's some simple sorting ability, but there's no real way today to prioritize things or, um, you know, quickly assign them to other users. I, can, I can't flag something as, as needing to come back to. So many of those um, actions that we're used to for managing other inboxes outside of Athena One, we don't have today in Athena One. And our vision is really to go into that direction of making the inbox a, a fully functioning uh, work management tool that can be customized and configured by user um, according to the needs of their job that they need to get done. Be because it varies pretty dramatically how users use and leverage our clinical inboxes by practice role and by job and, and function 
that someone within the practice has. So our vision is that we will move this inbox from a one size fits all, which you know usually fits no one, to a very configurable work management tool that would allow every role within the practice to quickly and efficiently get their work done. And, and that will include you know, the aforementioned uh, quick actions. And then funnily enough, and I probably do want to highlight this here, the feedback that we've heard from um, our test users, our pilot users so far is that they love it, but they forget to use it because they're not used to right-clicking on the clinical inbox. And, you know, this is, this is funny, but not really, because in medicine, like, we all operate on muscle memory, and we've all lived with the inbox for many, many years, and we're all used to just clicking on the thing, to going into the thing, whatever it may be, patient case, clinical document, encounter. So it, it is a change, right? And the impetus, especially if you're an efficient Athena user, is to just quickly do what you've always done, so the most frequent comment so far we've heard is, okay, this is really great, but I haven't really used it yet because I just forget that I can right click on it. And it, I, I'm so used to just doing the way I, I've been using it and I'm pretty quick at it. So it, it will take some getting used to and, and will require some change um, on our users' behalf to actually really test out this new functionality and leverage the opportunities. And again, it's not always appropriate, right? Like as a provider, for example, when I review the patient cases that are sent to my attention, I may need to go on the, into the chart still, right? I may not have the answers without actually opening this patient case in the chart and reviewing the information available to me to make an appropriate determination on how to respond to this patient case. So, you know, quick actions aren't for everybody, they may be appropriate for certain users within the practice. They may be appropriate for certain scenarios where I know the answer, I know the patient really well, and I can quickly respond to it. But, you know, for some users, the old method of actually opening the encounter or the patient case or the clinical document in the chart and reviewing the chart information at the same time that you're trying to formulate a response may still be 100% appropriate. Going back to my previous statement, it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Depending on what you need to get done, you will need to leverage different tools to go about this job that you need to get done. Yeah, every patient is different. Every clinician is different. I think that's what we're going for here is that to be able to do what you need to do based on your specialty, based on the patient you have, based on the information you have. I wanted to touch on one more opportunity for this kind of customization to make sure clinicians are seeing the information they want and being prompted by the questions they need to be prompted by. No more than that. A recent update involved ask on order entry questions where departments could customize the questions their clinicians were seeing when sending surgery and procedure orders. How have you seen that saving time for clinicians and departments? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Thank you for touching on that because this is one of those areas where it does require um, a little bit of work on our users end to set this up appropriately. But once they do set this up appropriately, it really has the potential to save a dramatic amount of work and really ensure that ask on order entry questions are completed correctly. So one of the comments I've heard consistently over the years, especially from proceduralists such, such as surgeons, has been that there are way too many questions in surgery and procedure orders. And this is one of the, I don't want to say downsides, but this is one of the side effects of a shared platform, right? It was a shared order compendium that must meet many different needs. So over the years, we have received many requests for ask an order empty questions that have then been added to surgery and procedure orders. Because like we said before, 
different specialties have different needs. They may be using the same orders, but they don't always ask the same questions, right? What's appropriate for a gastroenterologist may not be appropriate for an ophthalmic surgeon, for example. So what we have done now is give our customers the ability to actually customize not just the type of questions they want to see on their surgeon procedure orders, but also the order in which they want to see them, which has been another frequent comment that I've heard. It's like the question is on there, but it's number 20 on the list. And I always have to scroll down there and then I forget to complete it. So now you can eliminate all other 19 questions that you don't use and just surface that one question that you do use. The other really cool thing that you can do is that you can customize the question, not just by order type, but also by individual order genus. So if you have slightly different needs for different types within a surgical or procedure order type for different orders, you can also customize the questions down to this level. The other thing you can do now is actually customize the verbiage of the question. So if you like the question uh, date of surgery, for example, or time of surgery, but instead of free text, you want to give your users predetermined drop-down options. Again, you know, to drive a standard was in your practice, for example, ensure that everybody documents the same thing, that there's no room for error. You can do this now and you can actually configure that verbiage for certain ask on order entry questions for your particular practice. So there is a great admin page that allows you to do all these things. Um, if you haven't looked at it yet, I would highly encourage you to look at it. And in my mind, yes, this does take a little bit of time, but taking the time to configure surgery and procedure orders this way greatly enhances the efficiency of questions completion as the questions now display in an order and with verbiage that actually makes sense to the ordering provider and is relevant to your ordering provider in your practice. So what you mentioned about sort of it taking some time to figure it out, it sounds a little bit like the right-clicking you were describing with the clinical inbox that some of these things are changes. We believe they are changes for the better and changes for efficiency, but they are changes. And I can imagine we have listeners who are saying that these things sound great, but you know, I, already, I only have so many hours in my day and how do I find the time to learn some of these things? Could you speak to some of the coaching offerings? You know, we speak to these sometimes, but remind our listeners of some of the coaching offerings we have available in terms of that short-term time investment up front that can really help you learn some of these things to benefit long-term. Yeah, absolutely. This, this is something that I hear all the time too, and I'm, I'm very empathetic to this because, and, and I'm sure you are too, we all have a limited number of hours in our day and it can feel very daunting. And especially if you are a practicing provider, you must get through your day, right? You must see your patients. It, it can feel extremely daunting to take time out of your day to set up all these things. So I, I would, again, encourage everyone to share services as much as possible. I will talk about our provider coaching services in a second, but let's talk for a second about how to best set this up within a practice, right? If there's someone who's computer savvy and, and who has a couple of minutes, they can actually help set it up for everybody in the practice, right? There's different ways to go about creating these things, um, especially order sets. So order sets can be set up by a single person within the practice and assigned to everybody, or they can be set up personally by a user as their own personal order set, but then other users in the practice actually have the ability to search for someone else's order set. So if I, for example, have created a bunch of helpful order sets or encounter plans in my practice, I can let my colleagues know and they can actually 
either copy my order sets and make them their own and simply tweak them, or they can simply subscribe to my order sets. And what, what the difference is, if I copy someone else's order set, I now own it. So I can configure it, customize it, but I also am responsible for updating it. If I subscribe to another user's order set, if that user makes updates to the order set, I automatically get them because I'm just using their order set. I'm not actually owning it. So I can't make any changes to it. I have to go to that user and say, hey, this is no longer current. Would you mind updating it? But I'm also not responsible for updating it. So I can use it right out of the box. So again, there's huge advantages to a shared platform where you can simply look up the content from anybody else and leverage it. And and then you don't have to invest the time personally. So I would encourage everybody to share services as much as possible. To your other question, you know, how how can we help? Um, It is very daunting to stay on top of three releases a year and all that new functionality that's coming out. And, And we are really trying to help with this required change management. We have moved to quick little demo videos of important, impactful clinical functionality on our release uh, center. So the release center um, for the past year or so has been split into a clinical release center and an administrative release center. So for clinicians, especially who are extremely short on time, we now highlight the most impactful features um, as it pertains to clinical workflow. And we always include like a very short two to three minute little demo video that shows the new functionality because we feel it's very it might be possible for a busy clinician to consume this information in bite-sized increments. No clinician has the time to sit through an hour webinar. It's even hard for me to find this time, but they can consume a two or three minute video, hopefully. So that's one of the ways we're trying to help people staying on top of new functionality. The other thing we're doing, which which I personally am super excited about, is in-app guidance. So for many of our new features, we are now surfacing information with regards to the new feature directly in the workflow, in the application. And you'll all see those little, you know, info icons like this is new. Click on this. You, you'll get like quick little walkthrough. You'll get um, directed to the link where you can find additional information. So, you know, as a clinician, if on release day I wake up in the morning and my inbox has changed, for example, I can now click on this little what's new and get information right then and there in my workflow without having to lose my place. So that, I think, should help with some of this change management. The other thing that we offer and that you alluded to is provider coaching services. Um, So this is available for all of our customers, and um, especially for providers, they can sign up for our provider coaching services and can actually meet with one of our trainers and coaches to walk them through Here's some tips and tricks. Uh, t- tell me where your challenges are and, and get, you know, immediate real-time feedback and help in setting up some of this functionality. Uh, we also have consulting services that can help practices um, con- configure and set up certain functionality appropriately. So there's lots of um, opportunity to leverage us for assistance to ensure that new functionality is used appropriately and and most effectively. Yeah, and actually that's a customization opportunity we hadn't talked about in terms of learning. 
And even with releases, you talked about the in-app pop-ups, you talked about the short demo videos on the release center. We send numerous emails and there is an hour long webinar for the right person. That's not for everybody, but you know, busy clinicians probably aren't, like you said, going to watch an hour long webinar about all the changes, but certainly the, there are people at each organization whose job is to stay on top of all of the changes. And there's an hour long webinar that many people regularly attend with the chance to ask questions, get their questions answered about the features that provides an extensive rundown too. So th that's part of our goal is to ensure that whoever you are, whatever your role is, this podcast feed is another one. As you can see by scrolling back in the feed, as you'll see in March um, with a new podcast that will focus on some of the features in the spring 2024 release to make sure that people have the opportunity to learn about those features in their in their own way. Yeah, and that's that's a really great point, uh, Brian. And you know, going back to my earlier point, there's lots of different practice roles within the practice and, and all users consume information differently. And um, I, I think our uh, webinar, our release webinar is, is awesome. I heavily leveraged it back when I was a practice administrator. I know that we have many other practice administrators attend and we also have clinicians um, attend these webinars. I think they are great. That's probably the most in-depth review of upcoming release features that we offer and that our users can get. And I certainly would encourage providers to attend it if they make the time. I just know from my personal experience that it's very hard for practicing clinicians to make um, to make an hour time. And that's why I personally love that we split up some of those new features into bite-sized chunks that are a little bit easier to consume for practice roles such as clinicians who may not have an entire hour to dedicate to a webinar. But absolutely, the webinar is another awesome avenue that we offer to get up to speed on new release features. And I would highly encourage all of our users to attend it. It is recorded. So you can watch it asynchronously on your, on your own time um, if you can't make the time in the middle of the day. So we really try to offer several different platforms and avenues for users to consume the information. And then sometimes I feel it's more a matter of users not being aware that those are available um, than us not offering them. So hopefully this podcast will also help alert people to all the things that are available to help them <laughs> consume the new information. And that's that's the goal is to consume enough information to help them take advantage of the tools that are offered to just make the day just that little bit more easy to get through, see and focus a little bit more on the patient. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Jessel. We've really appreciated this rundown. Thank you. It was a pleasure as always. Here's what else you need to know. As we discussed, the spring 2024 release is scheduled for March, and you can expect to hear more from us soon about the features we have planned. In addition to the ability to take action on patient cases straight from the clinical inbox, you'll also see new features to allow you to better manage sensitive patient charts, and you'll also see new automation for claim creation, reducing the steps it takes to get your claims out the door. If you're interested in learning more about clinical workflows in Athena One, check our clinical coaching offerings. We offer provider coaching, clinical staff coaching, clinical practice coaching for administrators, and care and quality management coaching. Visit the Success Community and search Clinical Coaching to learn more. With over 350 partners across 62 capabilities and 60 specialties, the marketplace enables you to curate your Athena Health experience under one platform based on your specific business needs. Over 70% of Athena Health customers use one or more marketplace partners. Go to marketplace.athenahealth.com and filter by specialty or capability to find solutions that support your business, integrating seamlessly and powering the most open, scalable platform in healthcare. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to tell your colleagues to check us out as well. The podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by email at podcast at athenahealth.com, especially if you have any topics you would like us to cover to better support the way you use Athena One. Feel free to leave a review as well to help us become more visible. We at Athena Health are curing complexity to simplify the practice of care. We'll talk to you again soon.